It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. Experience more episodes, videos, and Bible study resources at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, how do guardian angels take care of us? Angels are real. They are powerful beings that work directly for God. Angels do play a role in the lives of God's people. This is awesome. But we need to be careful as there are all kinds of fanciful and fictitious beliefs about angels that are simply not biblical. So how do we know what's true and what's not? Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 25 years. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? As Christians, we are all encouraged by the scriptural principle that God's angels are watching over us. What better hands could we be in than those who were sent by God himself to take care of our very lives? As encouraging as this scriptural principle is, we need to be careful to avoid turning this reverent truth into some kind of human imagination that skews and corrupts its purity. The Bible is very specific as to the kinds of roles that angels do and do not occupy in our human lives. For us to truly appreciate how angelic influence works, we need to be prepared to accept that many of the notions and traditions surrounding angels are simply human-based fantasy and imagination. Now, this might sound disappointing, but it's actually good news as we want to define angelic activity through God's Word and His Word only. So, Jonathan, today's journey is a journey of understanding what angels are and what they're not. And to do that, we're going to present several observations of angels and go through them scripturally and try to put it all in order. So we're going to get started right off the bat here. Our first angelic observation is this. There are many descriptions of God's created heavenly host in the Bible, and in those descriptions, they are not called angels. So we're going to start with a scripture from Nehemiah, and this scripture is Israel confessing that they had sins after rebuilding the walls. First, what we're going to see is the heavenly host were created. Nehemiah 9, 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven and the heavens of all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. They were not called angels. Why? <laughs> You're right. They're called the heavenly host, and it says God created them, and it says they bow down before them, but they're not given the name angels. That's a good question why. We're not going to answer it yet, but hang on, we'll come back, okay? Let's look at this heavenly host a little bit further through another scripture. Let's go to Job this time. First it was Nehemiah, now we're going to Job. And what we're going to see is there's diversity within this heavenly host. This is Job, and this is when Job, uh, God is talking to Job and basically telling Job, okay, Job, you think you're so smart. Where were you when? You know, were you there when I did this and did that? This is the context of these verses, Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who sets its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The heavenly host includes morning stars as part of the sons of God, no angels. Why? <laughs> all right, no angels. So we've got this heavenly host, and now we've got morning stars, but no angels. The question is why, and it's a good question, Jonathan, I'm glad you keep asking. So let's go on to the next piece of unfolding here. We know that Lucifer was a very high and honored son of God at one time. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. This is from the American Standard Version. How art thou fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground that didst layest low the nations? So we want to take a moment on this verse because it's talking about Satan, Lucifer. And, and how do we know that? Well, 
It's a little complex, but in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 to 16, Lucifer is allegorically described as the king of Tyre. And in those verses in Ezekiel, which, which work together with the Isaiah verses, he's described as, quote, full of wisdom and, quote, perfect in beauty. And it says in the Ezekiel scriptures that he was placed by God in the Garden of Eden as, quote, the anointed cherub who covers. So that's a description of Lucifer as this mighty spirit being. And Jonathan, I'm going to say it before you ask. No, it's not called an angel at this point either. All right. (laughs) All right. And what we know is as Lucifer fell from honor, he also fell from sonship and he became the deceiver. And you look at this and you say, wow, what happened? It's a dramatic, dramatic fall. No, Well, no wonder he's called a serpent, not Lucifer, when he tempts Eve, because he had fallen outside of the jurisdiction of God's will. But we have him described as the anointed cherub who covers. So we've got that description of part of the heavenly host as well. Interestingly, God stationed cherubim outside of the garden after sin and after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. There were cherubim in heaven, and they were stationed essentially to guard the gate, if you will. And we see this in Genesis 3:24. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. We have the heavenly hosts, morning stars, sons of God, and cherubim. There's a pattern here. Still no angels. Why? <laughs> All right. And, and we're going to get to the why in just a second here. But I just, we just want to pause for a second here because, Jonathan, when we think of cherubs, you know, in, in our world today, people think of cherubs and you've got the little rosy-cheeked, chubby little babies with wings, and we yep. call them cherubs. And yet, in this scripture in Genesis, you have cherubim, more than one, stationed to guard the garden with this flaming sword, whatever that symbolized, I don't know. But you have this immense power. This is no no cheery little uh, diaper-flying fantasy, okay? We've messed it up. We've messed it up. We take the great power of a cherub, and we've made it into something cute and wonderful, it is powerful, a power, a heavenly power in the hands of God. So let's now define what angels actually are. What's the word actually mean in the Old Testament? To dispatch as a deputy, messenger, or representative. Angel means messenger, and we understand that to describe more of a job description rather than a being. We believe that all angels from heaven are sons of God, but not all sons of God are angels. So by virtue of the actual definition, to dispatch as a deputy. So Jonathan, if you were the sheriff and you wanted me to go do something for you, you'd say, Rick, I'm going to dispatch you as a deputy to deliver this message or to take care of this piece of lawful business. And I have the authority of Jonathan, the sheriff, to go deliver or go perform whatever it is you told me to do. Exactly. That's that's a job. You've given me a job to do. And that's what the word angel means. It means you are, you are taking or carrying a message. You are representing somebody else. It doesn't describe all of who you are. I'd like to think I'm a more than just the, you know, Jonathan's messenger boy, okay? Just saying. <laughs> We've got that as a definition. That's what angels are. And that's why you don't see angels as the definition of all of those other things, because they weren't doing that kind of work. Let's get into now the sons of God and some of the things that they were doing as well. The first recorded interaction of many sons of God in the lives of fallen humanity occurs in Genesis chapter 6. And it's not a good interaction. It's not a, a, an interaction that you look at and say, wow, that's awesome. No, it is a very, very, very devious thing that happens here. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. They weren't sent to do that. They went outside of God's will. Notice that they have no special titles, of course. Once again, no angels. Why? Because they weren't sent because they weren't dispatched as a deputy, they weren't sent on a mission from God, they were doing something of their own free will, 
And that's why the scripture labels them sons of God, not angels. We have to understand that because this is a huge truth that really puts things in perspective, especially when you start to talk about the dark side of of this whole story, which we'll touch on here and there as we go. But let's go a little bit further. Let's go into Genesis 6, verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So these individuals, these spirit beings, acted not only against the will of God, but they acted against the design of God. And they mixed spirit with flesh, and they bore a hybrid race, and that hybrid race did not belong. So this is a heinous sin that comes into play from the sons of God. They're not angels, because this is not God sending them to do something. And so the result of this comes in Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and that every intent of thought of his heart was only evil continually. Rick, this brings us to Greek mythology. It said, men of old, men of renown. There are shades of truth in the stories of Greek gods. For instance, the Greek god Zeus was the king of gods, the king of the sky and thunder, and he ruled on Mount Olympus. He has a child with a mortal woman named Alchemine, and her name means strong in wrath. Their son was called Heracles. He was famously known for his strength and far-ranging adventures. Rome changed its name to Hercules, which we're more familiar with. So this God, a spirit being, took a human woman and had a child, which the scriptures refer to as Nephilim. So you can see that, you're right, Greek mythology had a founding in what happened way back then. And it gives you kind of a sense, when you mix the two, you have something that's in between. And that wasn't, that wasn't God's will. So it's fascinating to see where that came from. You, you can really attach it to the biblical account. These, these sons of God... The spiritual sons of God, they were not angels or cherubim. They were dabbling in the lives of mankind of their own accord, of their own desire, and they were not messengers. They were not doing godly work in a godly way for a godly reason. That's what an angel is. That's what an angel does. This is not what we're looking at here. So, Jonathan, as we look at this, we begin to have to, ha- have to begin to adjust our attitude about angels. What, what do we have? God created all of the heavenly hosts as heavenly sons of God. Humanity was also created to be earthly sons of God. Both levels of created sons maintain that son of God title as long as they obey God. An angel from God is a heavenly son of God, tasked with representing God's will and word before humanity. Adam was called the son of God. He lost his sonship through sin. Lucifer was called a son of God. He also lost his sonship through sin. He became the enemy of God, the deceiver. The plot thickens. Now, why are we spending all this time on what angels aren't? So we can understand exactly what their role is and what it is not. And this is an important equation because it helps us to see exactly how God's will is unfolded through angels and a whole lot about what doesn't happen that many of us might think does happen. So God's heavenly host is far more complex than we generally think about. We can learn so much from what the Bible reveals if we pay attention. We just said that all of God's angels are his messengers. What do they do? What do they deliver? And how do they act? We'll begin to explore this by walking through a few Old Testament examples. What we'll find is a very predictable and reliable template for how God's angels do and don't interact with humanity. Observing these things helps us to take the imagination and guesswork out of understanding angels and helps us begin the process of understanding what we call quote-unquote guardian angels. So we want to take a look at some examples, practical examples from the Old Testament, God's spiritual beings serving as as angels. The first example we're going to be looking at is Abraham when he's prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
Here's what it looked like. Abraham and Isaac came to the place. Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood, bound his son, and lifted the knife to slay him. Genesis 22:11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. The angel was exactly delivering God's message to Abraham. It reflected the voice of God, stopping Abraham from doing what God only wanted Abraham to be willing to do. The test was, would he trust God's word? And the answer was, yes, he did. And God stationed that angel to make sure that nothing happened that God would not have sanctioned. He was looking for that unequivocal obedience from Abraham. And we know from other scriptures that Abraham very, very, very likely had a belief that if something happened there, God would would have brought his son back because God gave him that son as this uh, seed of promise. When we look at this, let's take a look at our angelic observation here with this, this example of Abraham. This Old Testament example shows us that God's messengers, his angels, intervened when God deemed it necessary for the precise accomplishment of his will. God saw fit that the magnitude of this experience, and this was a big experience, warranted a direct and dramatic response. Rick, this example, you know, Isaac is the promised seed, the starting point of salvation. It was a critical point in God's plan. It was, it was. And what we're going to be seeing is angels appear at these critical points in God's plan. Let's, let's go on to our, our next example. Uh, God's spiritual beings serving as angels. Remember, an angel is a messenger. God's spiritual beings aren't just sitting in heaven waiting to deliver the next message. They're doing whatever other work they do. So next example is with the prophet Daniel laboring in prayer over Israel's captivity. So Jonathan, let's go to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, Let me break there. What focus and reverence Daniel showed God in his prayer. I love that. Continuing, while I was still praying, speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Well, we know Gabriel was an angel. He gave announcements for God many times. This time, it's different. He's looking like a man. And continuing, he gave me instructions and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Jonathan, when you look at this, you see this tremendous interaction between Gabriel, this angel of God who who appears like a man, and Daniel the prophet. And he's praying, and he's seeing this vision, and he's being educated according to what God wants him to be able to see and understand and write down so that his plan could be revealed small step by small step by small step. I have a question, Rick. Does this mean Gabriel is Daniel's guardian angel? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. It means that Gabriel was sent to deliver specific information and specific encouragement. Daniel was so faithful that as soon as he started praying, the command for his answer was issued. This was not a guardian angel. This is God saying he needs to know more. He needs to write more because it will come into play thousands of years after he's gone. That's what the angelic intervention was for here. And, and that brings us to our angelic observation at this point. This Old Testament example of God's angel Gabriel shows us that God provided extraordinary support extraordinary support to those who did extraordinary things in his service. There is this correlation that we need to understand that when you have these big events, oftentimes God's angels do come into play to guide and direct. And then what do they do after? They're gone. That's what we're seeing here. 
Okay, so we've got those first two examples. We've got Abraham and we've got Daniel, and those are two pretty high-level individuals when you look at uh, faithful individuals in the Old Testament. Let's go to the next example. God's spiritual beings serving as angels, serving as messengers. About the same time that Daniel was laboring in prayer and in prophecy, Zechariah, a prophet of God, was searching for the same answers. So in the account we're going to look at, and Jonathan, I love this one because there's a, there's a really unique aspect to this, this next one. Zechariah is recounting his experience with an angel who was relaying God's precise words. So Jonathan, let's go to Zechariah 1, 12 to 17. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. There's a a three-way conversation going on here, Rick. It's interesting. It's three-way conversation. You have the angel talking to Zechariah and Zechariah responding, but then the angel is essentially talking to God as this is happening. This is unique. This is different. Is. And, and so, again, no, he's not his guardian angel, but you can tell that he's delivering something very specific from the Heavenly Father. Let, let's continue. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, which means God of many, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Well, Rick, the prophecy of the 70 weeks is also found in Daniel 9, 24, and it talks about the loss of favor to Israel for a time. We see the beginning of Israel's favor return when they're regathering in 1878 and then later becoming a nation again in 1948. So Zechariah puts this prophecy down. It appears in Daniel. And you can see that these two individuals, one's in Babylon, one is not, they are working together. And you've got God's angels orchestrating the development of the foretelling of the future according to God's will. So you have God's angels doing this really important work. They are directly representing God himself. I wonder, don't know the answer, but I wonder if that angel with Zechariah was Gabriel as well. Who knows? Don't know. Just just guessing at this point. Could be, maybe not. The point is that whatever the angel, whoever the angel was, did what they were supposed to do, took care of business, if you will, and then moved on. And this is, this is really important, Jonathan, because people tend to uh, get friendly with angels. You know, we think, oh, I've got my own guardian angel, and I think I'll give them a nickname. I, and, you know, you can laugh at that, but people do that kind of thing. They talk to their angels. They, sometimes people even pray to angels, they, and, and we get comfortable, and we can start to say, well, you know, my angel should take care of this or that. We have to be careful. What we're seeing is massive power directly from God. I don't know about you, but I am not going to tell it what to do. I'm not going to get all friendly. I want to be reverent. We want to be reverent. So the angelic observation here is this Old Testament example clearly shows us how angels are committed to one thing and one thing only, and that is fulfilling God's will and God's work. Now look, there are many other examples we could look at, and, and these examples have specific pointed lessons uh, that we need, clear to, uh, need to clearly grasp. So as we look at these lessons, think about it in terms of our own defining of guardian angels. We have this thing about guardian angels and how they're everywhere and taking care of everybody. That's not the kind of picture that we're seeing thus far. Now, the picture is going to get bigger. Okay, but the picture we're seeing thus far is very specific. So, Jonathan, four specific points here. Angels were sent by God to interact with very few individuals. These individuals played specific roles in the unfolding of God's plan at their particular time. These angelic interventions were unique, brief, and very focused in scope. 
Once the message was given or the mission was accomplished, the angels left. And I have a fifth for you, Rick. Even the priesthood didn't have this access to angels. And think about it. The priesthood did have things like the Urim and Thummim to give them a yes or no answer. You know, they also had Moses early on to interpret things for them, but they didn't have angels. And that's an important point, because when we look at angels and, and folks look, you know, in, in our lives, our lives are full of fantastical ideas. I mean, we have fiction that looks completely real. You know, we have artificial intelligence developing, and it, you've got all of these things that give you a sense of, whoa, w- look at the possibilities. Well, when it comes to God's angels, the possibilities are limited. They are limited and they are focused. And like you said, they, they, they did not appear often. It was for the unfolding of God's plan. When their mission was accomplished, they left. And it was a very succinct thing. And not even the priesthood of Israel had access to angels. This is important, folks, for us to understand because that's the, the Old Testament basis of angelic intervention. And it's not what we may think. You know, this might make us wonder about how God's angels do or don't interact with the rest of us. You know, okay, so what about us? We, we've been talking about how do God's angels take care of us. That's the big question. And we're like saying, well, you know, we're pushing them aside. We're pushing them aside. Well, no, not entirely. We're putting them where they belong, reverently. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here, because God's angels are watching over God's chosen. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways, that they will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. That's encouraging. That's uplifting. That gives you a sense of relief. But what does it mean? We're going we're gonna to unfold that as we go. One other scripture, Jonathan, Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear or revere him and rescues them. And again, that's encouraging. Like, whew. Okay, they're there. But how do we know? How do we understand them? All of that is yet to be unfolded, and that's all coming as we further develop this. But right now, after taking a look at these snapshots of the Old Testament, Jonathan, how do we go about adjusting our attitudes about angels? The Old Testament shows us remarkable individual examples of how God's angels have intervened in the lives of several individuals when God so commanded. These examples show us God's attention to the details of his plan, but did not teach us that we will have that same experience. This does not negate the biblical fact that God's angels do watch over his people. We see them interact with very specific individuals in the Old Testament in a very specific way. And we're saying, but that's not the norm. But God's angels do take care of us. So there is, there's a middle ground that we really need to understand and we need to find out. And the way to figure it out is to look at the rest of the scriptures. Realizing how available angels were for the most faithful Old Testament heroes is important. Realizing that angels do watch over all of God's people Well, that's just as important. There is obviously a difference between those heroes of Jewish faith and us here and now. What do we know about the New Testament angelic protection? All right. We know that the changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament are significant. The age of the gospel is the age of spiritual growth and reward, whereas the times before were about worshiping God from a physical and earthly perspective. This one fundamental change has a dramatic effect on how God's angels care for us. All right, dramatic effect. Oh, good. So it's going to be the way we want what everyone was hoping for. Here we go. So is it time, Rick, to talk about it? Like like this angel sitting here on my shoulder. Is that what we're getting into here? Uh, no. <laughs> what we're getting into is looking at how it works in the New Testament. And But see, Jonathan, that's where we end up going because we are so used to mixing fact with fiction and fantasy. And, and look, look on your phone. You can't tell if some things are real or not. And we get stuck in that. But we don't want to get stuck in that blurred world when we're looking at the mighty angels of God. We need to look at them with the reverence that God sends them out 
for their, their missions and, and their protection of us. So along the same lines as the Old Testament, God's spiritual beings were sent as angels to foretell miraculous world-changing events in the New Testament. So Jonathan, let's define angels, and then let's get started with that. Well, in the New Testament, angel means to bring tidings, a messenger, by implication, a pastor. Let's go first to the unlikely birth of John the Baptist. Luke 1, 18 and 19. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That's a very powerful interaction. Zacharias is wondering, and Gabriel basically says, Okay, you better be quiet. I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. And I'll tell you, Jonathan, that sends chills up anybody's spine if you, if, you, if you realize the depth and the power of that. So Gabriel is, again, <laughs> doing God's work here with Zacharias. Next, the impossible begettal and birth of Jesus, Luke 1, 26 through 33. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin named Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Let me pause there. Gabriel is commissioned with the preparation and safety of the Messiah. Continuing, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So again, Gabriel appears. Gabriel, you got to wonder about who Gabriel is, you know, in terms of his angelic, his spiritual being and all of that. But think about this. Gabriel was was there with Daniel. And now this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, and Gabriel appears here. And it doesn't sound like he's old and decrepit. You know, Gabriel is ageless, and he gives you this sense of this agelessness of the power of these representatives of Almighty God. And what is he here to do? He's here to put things in order to show God's plan is now taking another step. That's what he was telling Daniel back then, and that's what he's telling Zechariah. That's what he's telling Mary. God's plan is moving forward. See, these kinds of angelic visits were unexpected. And let's pause there, because sometimes we as human beings, we want those angelic visits to come at our beckoning. Oh, I want my angel to come and protect me. This is not the way it works. They were unexpected. These messages were always personally life-changing, but they would also alter humanity. These were a bigger message than the people that they were given to. They weren't about the recipients. They were about God's plan. The most important thing for John the Baptist was that he would introduce Messiah. And in both cases, the recipients were honored. But with Mary, it was about bearing the Messiah. That's the message. What a miracle. What a miracle. What a privilege. And what a change in the direction of mankind. And that's why it took an angel to deliver that kind of message. So this is helping us see that angels showed up at key points when specific direction was needed by those who served God. That we, we see that with Zacharias, we saw that with Mary. Now let's look at another example. Let's go further on down the road here. Let's go past the point of Jesus' ministry, his death and resurrection, past the point of Pentecost, where now the gospel is being spread. Let's look at the example of Philip in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 29. And Jonathan, this is another one of those unique interactions that you look at and say, okay, there's hints here about things that we really need to observe. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. I'm going to pause there. This is weird. The angel gave him directions. He said, Here is where I want you to go. All right, I'm going to continue. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then... The Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip had God's Spirit dwelling within him. Why didn't God's Holy Spirit tell him where to go at first? 
And that's a good question because you see at the end, you've got this spirit, you know, provoking him to say, go join this chariot. And I think that the answer likely was that he needed very specific instruction more than the provoking of God's spirit. And so this angel said, essentially, you know, go down the road and take a left at the third oak tree, you know, that, that kind of a thing. It was very specific to get him onto the right path. And once he got there, he knew exactly what to do. But it was the angel that got him there, and God's Spirit brought him from the arrival to the mission. So this is interesting, because this angelic direction was for the purpose of expanding the gospel into another country through a foreigner who, remember that, that, that eunuch was sitting there reading the book of Isaiah saying, oh, I'd love to understand this if somebody would just explain that. Talk about a witnessing opportunity, Jonathan. <laughs> Wouldn't <laughs> you <sure>. like that? <laughs> Here, yeah. you got some room, let me sit down and talk to you. <laughs> and that's what the angel brought him to. So he's hungry for God's truth. So you had the external angelic direction to bring him there. Then you had the internal spirit's direction to guide him with how to handle it. So you've got both of those things working together. It's really kind of a unique thing. But again, it's not normal. It's not every day. This is not the kind of thing where people say, okay, you know, my guardian angel, I want my guardian angel to help me find a parking place because you know, the, the, the street is busy. This is not the kind of directions we're talking about. This is for the furtherance of the bigness of God's plan. Let's go to another point. Angels continued showing up at key points when God's plan was in danger of being thwarted. You kind of hearken back to the experience with Abraham, you know, don't do it. And that was sort of a beginning that the angel was there to, to watch over to see that it happened. Well, let's go a little further. We're in the New Testament now. Let's look at the Apostle Peter. While the brotherhood prayed, the Apostle Peter was in prison. He was heavily guarded and chained asleep between two soldiers on the very night that Herod was going to call him out. So he is under tremendous, tremendous physical incarceration, and he has a very limited time. Let's see what happens, Acts 12, 7 to 10. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now I'm going to pause there. In this case, the angel is doing miraculous things and giving Peter specific instructions. Now verses 9 and 10. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Rick, I'm wondering, why didn't Peter get the angel's autograph? Or why didn't he ask him his name and, and later say, you know, I'm going to pray to you later. Uh, thanks for giving me that name. Or why didn't he use him as his personal genie? And Jonathan, those are all the kinds of things that we tend to do now. We'd want to get a selfie with the angel and post it on Instagram. That's what we'd, we'd want to do. The point is the reverence that we attach all of these things to drains away when you see the miraculous deliverance of this angel and then him leaving Peter to go to the brotherhood. There's, there's, there's this incredible sobriety in what happens here. And we've lost that with all of our imaginations about angels. So this is a pure, unadulterated miracle, and it's pure spiritual power. Why did Peter need such deliverance? Because he was a necessary tool of the gospel. And God saw that his will and his word would go forward no matter what. So let's put another angelic observation in place. As we examine these examples, we need to remember that the vast majority of biblical Christian experiences, the vast majority of biblical Christian experiences happened without any noticeable intervention or mention of an angel, period. This tells us that they're meant to be pretty much invisible to our eyes and to our minds. So there continues, Rick, to be a pattern here. It is more about fulfilling God's plan than about the person, right? Absolutely. And again, Jonathan, today 
We want to be able to command our angels or develop relationships with angels or have expectations of angels. There was no such thing then. There was God's miraculous deliverance or the, or the, or the proclamation of a message or a direction, and then there was leaving. And then, you know what there was? Pure, simple obedience and reverence and gratitude. That's how we need to begin to understand angels in our lives. Let's focus on the rest of us now. Let's, let's go a little bit further. How do angels watch over us? Let's look at a verse, Jonathan, that is often misunderstood. Let's go to Matthew 18, 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Is Jesus saying that children have angels? The context provides the answer. Matthew 18, 1 through 6 and verse 10, starting with verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is doing something very, very, very specific. He's saying, be humble like the child that he put before him. And Jesus continues to speak of humble followers, and he calls them children because he used the child as an example. And now he's talking about his followers calling them children. Let's go to verses 5 through 6. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is clearly carrying the thought of his followers being like children. Now verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We've got these verses, and we want to understand, what is it that Jesus is teaching us? Because he's using children as an example for his followers, and he brings in angels. So what, what are they teaching us? Se- several points, Jonathan. Let's do them one at a time. Jesus' disciples must become like children who have no status in the world around them. The first lesson is you have to be selfless. And already, we get too full of ourselves when we start to think about controlling angels and all of those kinds of things. We've got to be careful. We've got to look at this and say, that's the way I am supposed to be, because Jesus said to be like a child, be like one who has no status, who has no authority. What's next? These selfless true believers may be easily abused by others, but not without consequences. And that gives you a sense that God is watching over those that he has called according to his purpose. There's a protectiveness. Now, look, you say, well, there's a protectiveness, and Stephen was stoned to death. Yeah, that's right, because he was faithful, and his time had come, and the glory that followed was immense. But we see and understand that God's hands are over those who are following in Jesus' footsteps. What's next? True believers have angels that watch over them. That's exactly what Jesus said. They have angels that, that uh, in heaven that continually see the face of the Father. And the next point, there is no indication that each has a specifically assigned angel. And that's important. It doesn't say that they each, they each have. It says they're angels. That's plural. You, you look at this, don't draw conclusions that are not plain in Scripture. I guess that's the point. And this last point of not having a specific angel assigned to you for your life is verified by a, t- a Scripture that we already quoted. So, Jonathan, let's just go back to Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. What you have then is you have this sense of the, the beauty of God's oversight, but it's likely not at all like we think it is. How do we go about adjusting our attitudes about angels knowing what we know now? The beginning of the New Testament follows the example of the old where angels intervened to pave the way for God's plan to unfold. As the gospel church was formed and God's spirit took hold, angelic intervention was reduced to specific instructions or rescues that God deemed important for the furtherance of the gospel. However, all the while, God's angels were watching over his chosen ones. You know, our thoughts about our Heavenly Father should always be with reverence for His protection and care over us. That's what a loving Father does. His kindness and mercies endure forever. 
They do. And when you realize, the, the example of Philip is a great example because it shows you angelic intervention and shows you the leading of God's Spirit. You don't need angels involved in every part of your life when you've got God's Spirit from within provoking you and helping you and teaching you and guiding you. That's the point. So, you know, angels, we do need to see them through the eyes of reverence because they are God's messengers. They're not a plaything. They're not a companion. They're not a confidant. They're much bigger. They're much stronger than that. And they have much more of a serious, sacred uh, responsibility in our lives. It is really inspiring to see the meticulous ways in which God employs his messengers. His plan is protected, and so are we. So, what is the bottom line? How do angels actually watch over us? Do they miraculously do things for our benefit? (laughs) This is a difficult question to answer for the simple reason that those angels that minister to us, by definition, are doing so in unseen ways. As we now look more deeply into how all of this may work, we first want to pause and consider the larger picture of what it really means to be a called-out disciple of Jesus. Remember, God's angels are assigned from His heavenly host to those called-out ones. True believers are immensely privileged. Jonathan, just three very, very quick points. First, true believers have God as their father. Romans eight fifteen to 16. And this is from the New Living Translation. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Remember, you had said much earlier in the podcast that Adam fell from his sonship. You know, when you fall, sin takes you out of sonship. Here it is. It's restored. You are the sons of God. That's a big deal. That's a big privilege for the called out ones. The second immense privilege is that these called out ones have Jesus who sits at God's right hand as their elder brother. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you understand the impact of that? That's incredible to me. I, I, I look at that and say, wait, wait, can that be real? Can that be possible? That's so big. You have this tremendous family kind of relationship. And you say, well, wow, there's a specialness to those who are called out. And that brings us to this third point, which has everything to do with these angels. Third, the true believers have God's direct attention, his direct attention by way of his angels. We're going to go to Hebrews, and this was our theme scripture, Hebrews 1, 13 to 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Think about it. If we are to judge angels, as it states in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, angels must respect those who they give messages to. Why? Because in God's kingdom in heaven, there are levels of leadership and servitude all working together for God's good pleasure. Now think about this just for a second. We're going to we'll start to make a connection. We'll develop it as we go. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about angels being called sons of God, right? Right. S- spiritual sons of God. Well, in Romans, it said that we are sons of God. You see that there's a connection. There is yes. a, a familial connection here. And now with that understanding of God's tremendous care, You can see how these angels play a tremendous, tremendous role, even if we don't understand it. So so let's begin to develop this now. Our first angelic observation, God's angels rejoice in the accomplishment of God's will. In the context of our next verse, the Pharisees were complaining that Jesus receives and eats with sinners. Then he spoke the parable of the lost sheep and left the 99 sheep to find the one. Then he taught the parable of the lost coin, The woman lit her lamp, swept her house, and searched carefully to find it. Then Jesus said this, Luke 15, 10, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Now, this is very special, this repentance. This seems to me, based on the context, that this is a sinner who changed direction in their life to follow Christ. No wonder the angels rejoice. You get this sense of this community in fulfilling God's will and watching his plan unfold and the joy of seeing that. Did you see that? I mean, there's this wonder and this power and this reverence that we just don't often think about when we think about angels. They rejoice over the the little pieces of the accomplishment of God's plan. What else? Our next angelic observation, good angels don't know all of the answers, even though they minister to us, Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Angels don't know everything, and that's okay. Why? Because when they are sent as a messenger from God, what happens? He tells them, here's what you will do. Here's how you will protect. Here's what you will deliver. Here are the things that you are to accomplish. And when you're done, you're done. So there's this sense that they don't need to know every single detail of every single thing. They just need to deliver what God wants them to deliver. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 really enhances that a little bit. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels don't know everything. They don't have to. We don't know everything. We don't have to. All we both need to know is what is the Father's will. And when, when you realize that, it's okay to not know all of the interactions of the angels and what they're doing, because we see God's providence unfolding. That should be enough for us. So, Jonathan, there's so much to what we do know scripturally that we can start to put all those other fantasies away and say, thank goodness they're gone, because this is so much better. What's next? God's angels are never at the call or service of men. Never. Not even for Jesus. Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You notice Jesus didn't refute the Scripture. He just said, Putting the scripture in the context of following after Almighty God says, you don't tempt him. You don't test him. You don't tell him what to do. And that's Jesus' response to Satan. Don't tell the Heavenly Father what to do. It's kind of ironic that Satan made a living out of that, and it will cost him his very existence at the end here. But one other verse about Jesus being subservient to the Father in relation to angels is Matthew twenty six fifty three. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? If Jesus trusts the Father for his protection, shouldn't we? Yes, we should. And he could appeal, but the Father would have to decide. And so it gives you this sense that the messengers are in direct contact with the greatest power that the universe could ever possibly know. And Jonathan, I don't know about you, but that's very comforting for me. It's overwhelming, but it's comforting. And I don't need to know how it works. All I need to know is it's God's will, it's God's way. Jesus could not command the angels himself. That's really the point here. We as followers of Jesus should follow his example and never, ever tempt God to bring any deliverance to us that we shouldn't need. In other words, don't step out to say, watch my angel protect me in any way, shape, or form. What's next? Our last angelic observation, God's angels always carry out the will of God without, and let me repeat, without changing it. Galatians 1, 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That's a big statement, without changing it. God's angels will only and ever work within the parameters of the pure light of the gospel. They are not about adding or subtracting 
They're about exactly delivering God's will, God's word, God's way, God's prophecies, whatever it is that he commissions them to do. Anything more or less than that, we better be very, very suspicious of. Rick, you're right about describing God's angels, but this is contrary to any other kinds of messengers from any compromised or evil source. Hmm. Let's read 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So you have the other side of the issue, and the other side of the issue is messengers disguised to be angels of light. You know, how, ma- how many scams do we see uh, in, in, on the internet today? And, and people get emails and, you know, you click on the link. Why? Because it's disguised as something that it's not. And its design is to take your money, take your security, take whatever it is from you. And that's what Satan does. He is disguised as an angel of light. So we can only trust those things that are pure light and not the disguised portion. And, and Jonathan, actually, next week, we're going to be talking about demons and Satan. And that's not going to be a fun conversation. But this gives us a hint as to the other side of this coin and why we need to be very clear on what angels are, who they are, what they do, and what they don't do. When we talk about God's providence, God's overruling on our behalf, it's possible that some of its details are accomplished through ministering angels. We don't know for sure, but it's possible that some of those details may be accomplished that way. Let's, let's consider, for instance, Philippians 4, 19 to 20. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a Rick wondering here. Could God's riches on our behalf sometimes come to us through those angels and we just don't know how it is that it happens? It's possible. You know, we don't know. But our focus should be that God provides what we need. And that's the point. It doesn't matter how it comes. If God provides what we need, thank God, rejoice, have gratitude in everything, give thanks. Next, next level of this, Jonathan, as we begin to wrap this up, could we as individual Christians, be God's messengers, his angels sent to one another to aid in their well-being and protection. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. We should do what angels are called to do, and Rick, that is to engage with the brotherhood so we can be a blessing where we see a need. And how is it that we want to see that need? Through the provoking of God's Spirit. See, that, that's how we can, we can have this incredible privilege to minister to one another. In true Christians, the ministering we're commissioned to, gives one another, to, to give to one another, rather, is driven by God's Spirit, none other than God's Spirit. The Spirit makes us prospective sons of of God. And that is a very lofty description. Romans 12, 10 to 13. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. I often wonder if this brotherly love, this going to and supporting one another and give the give and take is not a reflection of what God's angels do for us. I don't know. I really don't know. But they're sons of God in, uh, in, in the spirit realm. We're sons of God in the physical realm. There's a connection. They are there to help us, to build us up. We are here to help one another, build one another up. Let's do that messenger kind of work that Jesus said— New command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. He told us, act like the angels. Now, he didn't say those words, but that's what they do. They care for us. Final scripture, Jonathan, Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We should be acting in a godly, messenger kind of way with those who are in the bonds of Christ with us. Absolutely. We want to act in that way. We don't necessarily know what or how those angels work, 
but let's act in that way. So Jonathan, finally, adjusting our attitudes about angels. According to the Bible, God has, does, and will send angels to accomplish a wide variety of tasks for the accomplishment of his plan. Among those tasks are the watching over, encamping around, and ministering to his earthly children. Let us remember that we truly do not know all of what they do or how they do it. Let us also remember what a comfort and privilege it is to have God's eternal care expressed in such a personal way. So, Rick, we've been told not to talk to angels, pray to angels, or to name angels, or to command angels, or to develop relationship with angels. Why is that so important? It's important because we want to make sure we're doing things in a scriptural way. In our world today, it's like taking reality and making it into a virtual fantasy game. And everybody knows all about that. It looks real, it feels real, but it's not. But the consequences of such games are that Satan is bigger and stronger and more powerful than we are. We don't want to walk down that kind of road. Perhaps angels ministering in our lives is God's signature of how he cares for us. Maybe it's God saying, you're my family, and I just signed, sealed, and delivered that with this being, these beings that I've sent to oversee your life. We don't even know. We don't even know the magnitude of what God does through these ministers who are sons of God as we are sons of God. All about angels. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners where we welcome your feedback and questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up next week, we're going to be picking up this subject from a slightly different perspective. How do Satan's demons influence our world? Talk to you then. <laughs> 